Um, we continue our series on the prophetic gospel of Isaiah, and so, and it's going to share a little bit before we pray and jump into things, but um, we're in the section of Isaiah where there's four servant songs, and we're actually touching on the third servant song today, and so we're going to get a picture and a glimpse of the heart of a servant of God who relies and rests on God himself. Last week, John, as he was preaching, is talking about um, addressing um, the servant song, the servant in a general sense, um, and now in chapter 50, it's going to narrow down and talk in more of a personal sense. And so that's kind of where we're going from general to personal. And so um, this morning, um, we're going to begin with the introduction and jump into that. Um, also, to give you a heads up, I think that's it. There's some also, just a few things. I just want to thank those who were involved with Dream Center yesterday. Um, if you're there, just raise your hand, just real quick. Whether yeah, you're there. Um, <clears throat> thank you for participating and being able to be the hands and feet and bless the neighborhood out in, in Raleigh there. And I think that's it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for gather. Um, we pray that you would, as um, Sean already prayed, but Lord, open our ears that we might hear your voice speaking to us specifically and directly and emphatically and personally, a lot of adverbs, so that we might hear you, know you, and follow you. God, we pray for the seeds planted through Dream Center, Lord, that you would give them life in the perfect time and um, way according to your will. We pray for the Costa Rica team as they need to raise another five, no, six or seven more thousand. We pray and lift that up to you, Lord, that this Christmas season that you would bless them so kindly um, and raise up the rest of them out so that they can go. Um, so, Lord, we lift that up to you. And, Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to um, hear from you through your divinely inspired word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, yes, turn to Isaiah 50. We're going to walk through chapter 50, verses 1 through 9. Um, as you get there, I'll share a little bit. As a means of introduction, I'm really just going to hit the first three verses. It serves as a wonderful um, introduction. At this time, um, Israel slash Zion is experiencing tough difficult times. And the main reason is because um, they are doubting God. And they, because of their doubt, they also are experiencing much darkness. And all the <coughs> challenging aspects that come along with that of suffering and trials. And so we see in verse 1, so this is kind of the framework of what they're going through. And now they have this dialogue with the Lord. And they get pretty uh, in your face with it. In verse 1 it says, <coughs> the Lord responds. It goes, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce which, with which I sent her away? Like, what is going on here? I was like, what, is this really talking about divorce? Okay, so they're talking about Israel's relationship with God the Father. So essentially God is speaking to Zion, Israel, and <clears throat> responds back in this way. You say, I, God, don't care about you anymore? 
You say, referring to God, I have divorced you. And, and so <clears throat> um, there's basically an accusation from Zion's part to God himself that God has somehow broken their promises. I mean, that he broke it, he broke their promise to him and he is no longer faithful to, um, to Israel. So the Lord knows uh, without a doubt he is faithful. He's eternal God. He doesn't break his promises. And so the Lord jumps in. Um, he interrupts this kind of accusation, false thinking, and breaks into it and wants to clarify um, what's going on here with the people of Zion. And he says, where is the certificate of divorcement? Produce it. Find it. Because the Lord knows there is no divorce certificate that was, that was ever given. I mean, he literally, the Lord says, produce the bill and show me where I divorced you. But what? Israel cannot do it. They cannot find it because no divorce has ever occurred. They feel that they feel abandoned because of the suffering and the trials that they're going to. But the Lord has not forsaken them. The Lord has not divorced them. So let's move to the second half of verse 1. We'll get a little bit more here. This next statement says, Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your, for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Well, what is, what's going on here? What is um, saying uh, to Zion? Well, you will see that for your iniquities you have sold yourself. In other words, what you're facing, the trials, the suffering that you're facing, um, the discipline you're facing, you have brought on to yourself. It is your fault. It's the consequences of your sin that you're experiencing this darkness and these trials in your life. The only person you have to blame is yourself, not the Lord. It is not, it's not God's fault at all what, <laughs> whatsoever. In fact, the truth is that God is committed and faithful to carry out his promises. Um, <clears throat> I think we kind of connected these in previous um, passages. The, the uh, Abrahamic covenant was mentioned in an earlier sermon. Also, I'll bring up the D Davidic covenant here. God is committed. He is going to be faithful to his promise. In verse 2, we see more of the background building up here. Now when I came, there was no man. Why, when I called, was there no answer? So the Lord continues to bring more questions in addressing um, the accusations of Zion. The Lord came and he calls out Zion. <clears throat> but there was no one, none faithful to God in the midst of suffering. No one is willing to, um, to believe, to, to obey the Lord, to stand firm in the midst of darkness and, and trials. In fact, God, <clears throat> excuse me, in fact, Zion doubted God's goodness. Zion doubted God's power, God's character. They were suffering from unbelief. The nation doubted God, and so they were facing suffering. And now, <coughs> a little bit more, um, God here reminds Zion of both his character and faithfulness in the last part of verse 2. 
This is hilarious if you think about this dialogue the Lord's having with them. He goes, is my hand shortened? The Lord's speaking himself. Is my hand shortened that I can't do anything to help you? Can you just imagine, Lord, I have short hands. Can I not help you? <clears throat> Are my hands so short that I cannot deliver you or redeem you? Of course the Lord's hands, he can stretch out and save you and deliver you at any moment. Or <clears throat> have I no power to, to deliver? He's questioning, you know, is, it, is God's power um, <clears throat> minimal? Has it, has it run out? Is there, did the batteries of God you know, short-circuit or something? No. God has infinite power. He has more than enough power. He has all the power, all the resources exist within him to carry out deliverance and redemption. So it's not a question of power. And it's not a question of God's hands being too short. <clears throat> he says, Behold, by my rebuke, <clears throat> by the voice of the Lord, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water, and die of thirst. A quick sentence the Lord is giving a lot of history, Old Testament history, to remind Zion of His goodness, His faithfulness, and His power. Just think and trace back through the Old Testament in terms of what the Lord has done. I'll give you a quick caption or a quick highlight in this quote by John MacArthur. He he responds in the following way. God asks why no one is willing to believe and obey him, even after all had seen seen his redemptive power in Egypt when he dropped the sea. I mean, he, he literally spoke. And this whole entire sea was dry, and a path was made for them to escape. And I believe it was so dry, and even the scripture says, it wasn't muddy anymore. It was dry dirt for them to walk across. They didn't have to slosh through mud. And then what happened next? If we remember in Joshua 4, the Lord opened the river of Jordan by turning it dry into dry land. In, in Exodus 7, he killed the fish, of, the fish in Egypt. The Lord's power to redeem is disputable. He proved it by his deliverance from Egypt. Over and over, there's more examples, but the Lord has infinite power to deliver, to save, and to rescue. There is no doubt there. Now let's go to verse 3. Um, how does the Lord feel about this? What does heaven think about man's doubting and man's unbelief and how they have put um, false accusations before the Lord? <clears throat> In verse 3, the Lord says, I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth their covering. In other words, heaven is in mourning because of the doubt and unbelief of God's people. There's sorrow in the heart of God when His children sin. Sin in, <clears throat> sin in the lives of God's people clothes heaven with darkness and sackcloth. This is the context. This is the backdrop of what's happening in this context. And as we look at the answer, this is the same thing that Pastor John mentioned here. This is a prophetic scripture, a prophetic passage, that's doing two things. It's, it's a 
it's a historical context that is addressing a present day situation in the time of Isaiah. At the same time, it's a prophecy predict, predicting what Christ <coughs> will be, pointing to Christ, and it will all be fulfilled, much, much of it in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so that's the framework here. That is the background. That's the context. That's the backdrop. And so now we're looking at this third servant song of four. And so I, when I read this, I can't help but to think this is not too different than uh, the Triangle, North Carolina, North America, the United States. We are people who doubt. We are people that um, exercise unbelief. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't exercise belief in some ways, but there are ways that as a nation, broadly, and as individuals, we, we face... I'll just kind of put out that I think we face it some of the darkness that we do today because of our unbelief. And so in the midst of suffering and darkness, God is calling out and looking for those who would stand up, those who would believe in a, in a, in a world of unbelief as we are thrown out lies constantly in the church and outside the church. God is looking for those who would stand up and have these qualities, these three qualities uh, the Savior servant or the servant Savior, however you want to put it, from Isaiah 54, 50 verses 4 through 9. And so the, four, the three qualities that we're going to look at are right there on the screen. The heart of the Savior servant relies on God's word. <clears throat> Quality number two, the, the heart of the Savior servant reveres God in the, in the face of suffering. Quality number three is the heart of a servant Savior is resolved in God in the face of trials. And so, well, we're just going to look at these one at a time. Quality number one, the heart of the Savior servant relies on God's word. We see in verse 50, it says here, says the Lord God. I'm just going to park it right here. The servant Savior is aware of the Lord God. I don't know if you ever read the part of your Bible before you open and start reading Genesis, but it'll give you some clues on different passages, and this is one of them. <clears throat> the servant Savior is aware of God. He has a God consciousness, and you need to understand these two words, Lord and God. In some of your translations, it'll say Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and in the NAS, ESV, it says literally God. But in other translations, you might see Lord in all caps. And so you have the word, the first word is Adonai, which is, expresses my Lord, my personal Lord. Um, <clears throat> one's relationship to the Lord, a close relationship with the Lord. The word God, or <laughs> Yahweh here, um, it speaks of God in a different sense. Um, let me just kind of break it down a little further. Lord in all caps, which is the second word here, is found 6,823 times. So that's the dominant word you see for God or Lord in all caps in the Old Testament. This, Lord, this word Adonai is found around 300 times. So you kind of see the, the variance of words there. But here <coughs> it's, it's a choice and very, I think, particular why the author, he says this phrase at least a couple of times, says, Lord God, this is my 
Lord that I'm relating to personally and closely, and <coughs> the and God, um, the <coughs> often translated Lord in all caps or Yahweh or Jehovah, and this speaks of God who has always existed. Or maybe in Exodus chapter three verse fourteen, the word of the Lord says, "I am who I am," or <coughs> it speaks of the Lord who is creator, all-powerful, almighty, who's able to speak and create all things out of nothing. So, in this dark and discouraging situation, I want you to see who the Savior servant turns to. Google! No. The internet! No. My best friend! No. Escapism! Drinking! Disney Plus, on and on, or Amazon Prime, on and on. You know, mesmerizing ourselves with media to death. Alcohol, drugs. No, he doesn't turn to any of these things. He turns to the Lord, my personal Lord, Yahweh, the all-powerful one who created all things. So that's the biggest thing you need to know. Who do you turn to? Many times I think when things get hard, what do we do? We escape, we run, we flee, we do all these things but turn to the Lord. But the, <coughs> the scriptures here gives the best example. He turns to what? The Lord. And what, what happens here? In the difficulties of life, the Lord wants to train us. And he wants to do a lot of sculpting and molding and shaping in our life. And so we see in verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So let's just break this down even further. So the Savior servant is taught, and I want you to know he is taught very well. Sometimes, I'll just say and speak for myself, I'm not saying NC State students do this, or Chapel Hill or whatever, but many times we go to school and we what? We learn to pass tests just to get by. And then after that, if we forget everything, uh, no big deal, right? So the training here, we both see in the Old and New Testament, the hope is what? That you're trained so well that you not just know the knowledge, but you know it so well that you become an expert at it to the point that you are fluent in it until you master the content so that what? You can also teach others, okay? Um, it's not just facts and you just spit it all out. The training for the Savior servant was deep point that he became fluent with what the Lord had wanted to teach him. And so the Savior servant continues his instruction from the Lord, and he does so as a humble student as he relates to his teacher. We see here that he hears as those who is taught. He wasn't arrogant. He took in, he listened to what the Lord wanted to teach him. He wanted to, to grow. Um, he wasn't just kind of just sitting there just daydreaming, all right? I know what that's like because I've done that before. So if you're daydreaming right now, just stop it, all right? Um, pay attention, all right? Just pay attention. Um, <clears throat> how often does this place, how often does training take place? We see here in the passage, it's morning by morning. Morning by morning. It was a daily affair. It was consistent. It was regular. It was often. It wasn't just plugging into like a gas station once a week. That is not a morning-by-morning morning event to come once a week on Sunday. He walked with the Lord on a regular basis, on a daily basis. He engaged the Lord God, his Adonai, 
in an intimate, personal, close way. Let's just say he had a holy habit to meet with the Lord on a regular basis. And I realize if you are in a process or this exercise, this holy habit of engaging with the Lord day by day, you will grow by His grace, little bit by little bit. It will make a difference in your life. More and more you'll see your life transform. Even if you just take one verse a day and just <clears throat> run that through your mind over and over, you'll see that your thoughts trans- will change and adjust and modify from worldly thoughts, selfish thoughts, to more thoughts about God and His kingdom and His glory. We see the effects of this transformation in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams, plural, of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and <coughs> its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I want you to see here that the psalmist uh, meditates day and night. Um, he's deep with Jesus. He's deep in God's Word. He has the depth to his relationship. And you see the proof of it because it's in its season, in difficult times, dark times, he still prospers. And so, likewise, the Savior's servant is deep and he's connected um, with the Lord. And he's able to what? Believe amongst what? A nation of doubters. That's difficult to do. When everyone's doing one way, usually what? We all go with the crowd. It's hard to go upstream. It's very difficult, but the Lord gives grace. And I think it's more than grace. You have a clear view of God and a close relationship with God. And you're consumed with God's glory. To the point we see in the latter part of verse 4, to what end, to what purpose is this instruction the, the Savior's servant is instructed so well and trained so well that the hope here is that you may know how to sustain with a word, <coughs> with a word him who is weary. Um, so you're able to sustain yourself by God's grace, but you're also just able to sustain and encourage others. You're also able to sustain and encourage others. The translation in the Hebrew is goofy here. I'm not saying God made it wrong. It's just hard. The translation it was, doesn't come really simple toward the English. I mean, some of the translators says this, this translation is a little awkward wording. It's a little enigmatic. I- and so I'm just going to give you a number of translations, and you'll get the idea. Um, <clears throat> that the hope that you'd be able to sustain the weary with the word, console the weary with a timely word, um, the word is the word that excuse me the word that sustains the weary. Those are different translations, and so you get the idea. You're filled with God's truth and taught so well that you could skillfully apply God's word in hard and difficult situations, specifically to people who are weary, who are tired. Um, <clears throat> and so that's what the Savior servant is able to do. 
Um, we also see in the latter part of verse 4, it says that the Lord awakened, opened um, his ears, his understanding, um, as those who are taught, literally here, to hear like the learned. He literally mastered his, this teaching from the Lord to the point that he owned it. He was transformed. And <clears throat> both in the Old and New Testament culture, this training, I just want you to see what was complete training, complete mastery. Um, we need to get beyond the point to say, hey, I, I, I know the facts. I know the ABCs. No, I know how to what? <laughs> Follow Jesus in the midst of suffering. And so, in the, in this really commonly, you can, <clears throat> we, we have very, tra- there's trades in the Old, New, Old and New Testament like fishing. You can, watch someone to, you can watch someone to fish, and that's part of the learning experience, and someone can tell you about fishing and the great stories and the great catches. But it's a whole other thing to actually what? To learn how to actually fish yourself and to catch a lot of fish and, <coughs> and fish to the degree that you master fishing. The same goes for farming. You can watch your dad farm, and you can see what is done. You can participate maybe when you're little and throw some seeds down. But you want to be trained effectively that one day, what? You could farm and you could do it well and do it as well as your dad or whoever taught you, whoever your master was, <laughs> that you are a skillful fisherman or farmer. In the same way with walking with the Lord and knowing His truth, that you become a master at the gospel, that you become proficient at being a disciple and making disciples. And so that's the first quality, one who's taught well. Taught, to ma- <coughs> taught at the level, I'll just say it, Jedi level, okay? You, you're, you're able to defeat your master, right? <laughs> you become very good at the heart of the gospel here. Quality number two, the heart of the Savior servant reveres God in the face of suffering here. In this passage, we clearly see Christ in verse 5. Savior servant explains the Lord's work in his life, to revere God in verse 5. And so in this passage, again, we see those, that, those two words about God again. It says, The Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, has opened my ears, and I did not, <coughs> excuse me, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. Literally, here in this passage, it says here in the Hebrew, opened my ears. In other words, it was the Lord that prepared the Savior servant to receive instruction, to take in information from him. Um, this is a common saying in the Old Testament. His ears and ready to hear from the Lord. In other words, he honored the Lord. He respected the Lord. He what? He revered the Lord. He had a high view of of God to the point that what? He was obedient, not rebellious. The servant was Godward. He wasn't turned backwards. I don't know what it is when, when the heat is on and there's pressure in your life, there's an intense temptation to do things backwards. And at that point, <clears throat> we and the Savior servant, that's where we need to fight. We need to draw on the truth of God and the grace of God in those moments to rely on Him 
to fight the good fight, to, to stand firm. And if our roots are short in those moments, ask the Lord to, to elongate them so you can stand firm. We know that the Lord um, and the Savior's servant um, were committed to submit to the Father's will no matter what. Um, I hear from different officers, whether police, sheriff, in that world, that there's a part of their training that, I don't want to get this wrong, but I've heard you know, firsthand from officers, one of the trainings they go through is they have to take a, a punch and they can't turn their, their face. And so in their training, they can't, <laughs> another off, in their training, they'll, they'll slap them in their face and they can't turn hit in the back. In that moment, whether you're male or female, whoever's being trained, you've got to just take that punch and hold strong in the face of that particular difficulty. And so for Jesus, to what degree did he commit himself to obedience, no matter how difficult it was? Well, we get the answer in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus came in the form of man, and he humbled himself and became completely obedient to the what? To the point of death, even death on a cross. He was resolved and he revered the Lord to the point of his own death because he was committed to being obedient no matter what. He was committed to God's glory. Jesus even prayed before coming to the cross at the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, may this cut be taken from me. But the telling moment came when he added, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was, the Savior's servant was, committed to God's will no matter what. He was, he was deeply committed and had deep conviction. Um, going on in verse 6, we understand... Um, how much the Savior servant revered the Lord in difficulties and in suffering. And this is another verse that points directly at Jesus. In verse 6, the prophecy here, the Savior servant says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant, the servant will participate willingly or voluntarily. He says, I gave. And also, <clears throat> he, he participated in such a way that he suffered many indignities. He pulled out, <laughs> he suffered his beard being pulled out. Um, he suffered disgrace being spit upon. Many acts of contempt over and over throughout the New Testament in Walker's commentary summarizes some of these, and you'll be familiar with these if you're familiar with the New Testament. Such language is um, immensely applicable to Jesus the Messiah, and many of the details that might have seemed like natural imagery in the larger picture had a literal fulfillment in Matthew, in Luke. In Luke 18, verse 32 
says that such prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus being spit upon. This entire description is a preview of the beating and mockery that Jesus Christ endured prior to his death on Calvary. The Roman guards made sport of him, beating his face and hitting him with clubs. But the submissive servant did not rebel or attempt to escape this dishonor and humiliation. This is amazing that our Savior would go through this for us. He loved us so much that he took this on willingly to fulfill God's will, to fulfill God's promise, and also had the big picture in mind, fulfill it for our good and his glory, our good for the salvation of our sins, for God's glory um, and his renown. All that in play is here. So on this side of the cross, and us today, we know that Jesus will experience, would, would eventually experience all this. Um, we'll, we'll jump down to point three. The third quality here, the, the heart of the Savior servant is resolved in God in the face of trials. We're in verse seven here. And we see the, servant, the Savior servant is simply resolved. Um, <clears throat> again, we see, but the Lord God, Adonai, Yahweh, my personal God, trusting in the great creator God who is all power. What does he say? Help me! He turns to the one that can actually help him. That's it's, it's amazing. But I, I look at my life, sometimes I turn to the Lord, sometimes I don't because I'm a fool. Um, but the Savior's servant here is definitely not a fool. He runs and he goes quickly to Adonai, Yahweh, and he says, help me. Therefore, I have been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put ashamed, or put to shame. And so, and we see that the Lord, or the Savior's servant, is focused. Um, his face is like a flint. We see a similar phrase here in Luke 19, I mean, excuse me, 951, when Jesus faced Jerusalem, he was committed to God's will. He was facing the right direction. He was resolved to go the right way, no matter what. Um, We also see in this passage a reminder um, in the midst of difficulty and challenges that there will be final victory and, and, and Christ will avail. We, we just take the big picture from creation now to the cradle, hence Christmas season, and now we're moving toward the cross. Let's be reminded that Jesus Christ, as he endured all this injustice, all this suffering, it was so important that he would endure in obedient sense to remain, what, sinless as the perfect Lamb of God, to be the perfect sacrifice for you and me um, when he died on the cross. And so the Savior servant and Jesus himself, they only look to the Lord um, for grace and to vindicate themselves. And so in this last section of verse 8 and 9, we see a series of questions and where the Savior servant was resolved to trust the Lord at 
his word no matter what. And so in verse 8, the Savior servant says this, as he faces all this, and I don't know how long this is going, but we're saying weeks, months, and years are passing, and he's going through intense suffering. And he says this, Who will vindicate me? He, excuse me, he who vindicates me is near. He who vindicates me is near. The Savior's servant knows that the Lord is what? Near to him. He's right there. He's not this far out God who is not going to be able to help him. Um, because maybe God's not responding right away doesn't mean he's far away. The, the Savior servant has a clear and high view of God. He knows the one who can and will vindicate him is near. Um, going on in verse 8, the Savior servant begs the question, Who will contend with me? Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. In other words, who will contend? Who will strive? Who will struggle with me? The Savior's servant knows that God will stand with them together. He knows that God is with them. Uh, <clears throat> in just the littlest ways, um, as a kid, some of my biggest battles is just playing sports, basketball, soccer. And I always had a close friend on my team. You know, within the team, I always had a buddy. Let's do this together. Let's win this game. I mean, I'm sure like Shaq and Kobe said, let's win this championship together. Um, now it's, I don't know, some other player or whatever in L.A. today. LeBron and A.D. Let's, let's win this together. So for the Savior's servant here, it is what? The Lord and Him. Let's stand here firm together. Verse 2, <clears throat> there's another question. The Savior, Savior servant begs another question. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. This is a bold statement. The Savior's servant is so confident in his relationship, in his covenant relationship with the Lord, he invites his adversaries and, and enemies to challenge him. If you have any accusation, any whatever, bring them on. Bring it on. I'm going to still trust the Lord no matter what. Just bring it on. And so... The Savior's servant reveres the Lord. He relies on the Lord. He is resolved to stand with the Lord because of his truth, because of the training, and because of God's trustworthiness. This reminds me of someone in the Old Testament, and his name was David. Young David was trained when he was young. The Lord trained him to what? Deal with lions. And bears. He, he was able to use a slingshot and kill them. He went through that training as a young boy. And so when he faced Goliath, he was fully trained. He knew that God was with them. And so when it came to Goliath, he was confident in God. He had a God confidence that God would be with them. And so by God's grace and God being with them, David knocked out Goliath. Question three in verse nine. Here's another one. Behold, the Lord God, same phrase again, Adonai Yahweh helps me. Who will declare, who will declare me guilty? Who will declare me guilty? The Savior asks, who will declare him guilty of any wrongdoing, of any law-breaking? The, the Savior's servant addresses his opponents and his enemies. Can anyone bring a legit accusation against me that will stick? 
the Savior's servant calls attention right here in this passage in verse 9. Behold the Lord God. He, he knows without a doubt the Lord God will help him. And so he knows the I am is with him. The all-powerful one who's above all is with him and help and will help him. Because the Savior servant is so resolved and so confident, he boldly says this, Behold, all of them, all his accusers, all his enemies, will wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. This is a hilarious statement. Um, in the time of you know, Israel or the ancient Near East, um, clothes would always be... Um, here is that um, people highly feared moths because they would eat up their clothing and their garment. And so essentially what the Savior servant is saying to all his opponents and to your enemies, try, 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 and eventually you will wear out and you will fail. As you throw out accusations, they will not stick and they will not make this Savior servant who stands with the Lord guilty because what? He knows that they will wear out just like garment and the, <coughs> that the moths will eat up. There's a story, a uh, historical account of President Woodrow Wilson. He was um, facing intense lies and intense gossip during Woodrow Wilson's first term as president, his wife Ellen died, and Wilson was devastated. Some months later, he met a widow named Edith Galt. After a brief engagement, the couple was married in December 1915. In the election of 1916, Wilson's opponents, he had people, enemies, um, against them began criticizing <coughs> And Wilson's opponents began circulating stories about his marital improprieties, suggesting that his wife had died, his first wife had died because um, she was heartbroken. So what Wilson did, he wrote, Wilson wrote to his former pastor, I do not know how to deal with the fiendish lies other than to invite those who repeat them to consult anyone who has known me for any length of time. Fascinating. He know, Woodrow Wilson was confident that there was no issue. So he says, hey, to, your en to his enemies, ask anyone who knows me, and you'll find the truth. So Woodrow Wilson's invitation to his accuser was to check out the facts as a tried and true way of killing gossip. Woodrow knew that he was right. He had nothing to hide. As a man of integrity, he invited his opponents to check the facts, do an investigation that he might be found innocent and acquitted. So, what does the Savior servant mean for us today? He was a Savior servant that stood up in the time of difficulty and darkness in a community of doubt. I think that's an encouragement to us. But even more so, the Savior servant points to Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all these prophecies. 
he gave glory to the Lord. He entrusted in life, his life to the Father moment by moment, making himself the acceptable sacrifice for you and I. So, here are your quick applications. It's the same thing for the Savior's servant. Let's rely on God's word. Let's revere God in the midst of suffering. Let's be resolved to stand firm in the midst of the most difficult trials. And practically, you can come to Jesus and find rest because he made rest for you. Um, in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and, heavily, and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. Come now, don't wait. For those who believe, I want you to know that our Lord is sufficient. You can come and draw near to Him anytime. He is our high priest. And then lastly, an application for the church. Statistics make me sad today. Um, the average churchgoer comes to church maybe once a month, if that, twice a month. As, as much as you're able, come to church on a consistent basis. And if you can't come, um, for good reason, we understand. Watch church on TV or come on a different day. But as much as you can, be a part of the community. This is good for you and your soul. Um, when you come, to the, <coughs> you come and gather, you are usually encouraged and we have a great opportunity to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son the amazing servant who humbled himself with perfect obedience to the point of death on the cross in your sovereign plan through creation to the cradle to the cross he died for all men and women for all time that one day we may meet him in perfect glory in jesus name we pray amen